Now, in chapter 20, um, we see Luke organizing his thoughts in such a way that he brings us a series of confrontations. A number of conflicts arise in this last week leading up to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. In verses 1 through 8, uh, Pastor Chris preached about the chief priests and the scribes and how they were confronted by Jesus. They actually came and confronted Jesus themselves and asked by whose authority he was doing the things that he was doing, by whose authority was he, was he healing, was he teaching these things. And then Jesus turned that around on them and challenged them, uh, logically gave them a question that they could not answer. In verses 9 through 18, Pastor Paul preached last week about unbelieving Israel and how Jesus confronted their disbelief and their unwillingness to receive the truth from God's messengers and from his prophets. That was a parable that really confronted the people and made them question their hearts and why they would reject the things that are obviously coming from the Lord God. And even prior to chapter 20, at the end of chapter 19, we read of how Jesus, after the triumphal entry, comes into the temple courtyards and he sees that the temple courts are being used as a place of base commerce and that his countrymen are being exploited there. And so he, he turns to anger, righteous anger, and drives those men out of the courtyard of the Gentiles, confronts their wickedness, their selfishness, and their materialism, and, and the zeal that he has for God's house, implores these men to treat it with holiness and reverence as it deserves to be treated. See, the presence of light, by its very nature, confronts darkness. When you open a door into a dark room and you are in a room of light, the light floods in and the darkness cannot dwell there anymore. It is, it is dispelled by the light. And so too is the darkness of deceit and evil and wickedness confronted as the light of God's truth comes upon a place. And so as Jesus enters into this place that he has shown us he is headed towards for, for at least a year now. He's been revealing to his men that he needs to go to Jerusalem so that he might give his life. As he enters into this place, he brings with him light. He brings with him truth. And the deception that exists there is, is coming into conflict with that truth. Christians, as we draw near to God together, I challenge you to come into this place ready to be confronted by God each Sunday. This kind of confrontation is loving. It is good. And it's proper for coming from, when it's coming from a God who loves us and who wants the best for us. We approach Him on bended knee because He is a good God and He has made us new. And because of His truth and because of His incredible love, when sin dwells in us, He will reveal it to us, His children, so that we will not walk in that sin, but instead that we will refine it out of our lives and seek Him all the more. This is the posture of true discipleship. When we come before the Lord God, ready to receive whatever He has to give to us, even if His message is tough for us, even if it reveals something we would rather stay hidden, even when it embarrasses us because we are so ashamed that we don't have the power to overcome it by ourselves, this is the posture of true discipleship. When we really want to follow after Jesus, we have to be ready for Him to strip away each of the things that do not match His goodness and His glory and His truth. We should do this when we gather together and worship on a Sunday morning and open the Word of God together. We should be asking the question, even before we begin, what might need to change in me, Lord God? 
How would you refine me to be more like Christ? When we enter into our focus groups, some of our focus groups just started this last week, some are starting this week. We should be thinking that way as we get into Bible study together and as we share prayer requests with one another. How might I reveal my hurts and my struggles to my brothers and sisters so that they can pray for me? How, how might I need to be refined based on the, the, the Word of God that we are studying through together right now? In our families, as we pray together, as children are corrected by mothers and fathers, as husbands and wives have to ask for forgiveness from one another, we should constantly be asking, God, how can I be more like Christ in the role that you have called me to play in this life? Last week, Paul made reference to the Garden of Eden about how after Adam and Eve sinned there, God almost immediately confronts them. He doesn't just ignore their faults and he doesn't just let them see the death that was promised as a consequence of their sin come to pass, but instead he confronts them. And then he doesn't just confront, he gives them hope by revealing to them a snapshot of the gospel that he will not allow wickedness to destroy all that he has created, but that he has a plan to redeem what belongs to him. And so as he confronts us, he doesn't do it to destroy us, he does it to refine us and make us depend on Him more and to get rid of those things which are keeping us from the joy He has in store. So I want to clarify a little bit today about what we're going to study in Luke 20 because the way that God lovingly confronts us who trust in Jesus with the truth is significantly different than the way He's confronting these groups throughout the text of chapter 19 and 20 here of Luke. The men who approached Jesus in our passage today specifically, and for that matter, the men who were confronted in the temple courtyards and the chief priests of verses 11 through 8 and the faithless portion of the nation of Israel, these people were all being confronted because of their opposition to Christ, not because their faith in Christ made them sons of God. A line was being drawn in the sand. Jesus was making it clear that there was a desperate need for these to believe and to repent. These individuals could not continue to resist him and rebuke him and expect to have the grace of God in their lives. Unless they put their faith and trust in this mighty and an unwavering God, they have great reason to fear the confrontations that we're reading and studying about. And so if you've got your scripture open to chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning the scribes and the chief priests, sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness. And he said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. 
The high priests and scribes had no desire to be confronted by Jesus. They were offended that he had the audacity to point out their hardened hearts, their deceitfulness. They desired to lay their hands on Jesus, which means they wanted to capture him and take him out of the equation. They were tired of dealing with this man who questioned their authority and who appeared to have a higher authority than theirs. So they wanted to lay their hands on him. They wanted to capture him, but they perceived that they would need to do this very carefully. Jesus had many people interested in his ministry. Many people saw him as the potential savior of Israel. So they couldn't just grab him or they risked the masses turning against the high priests and the scribes. They had to be very cautious. They're handling Jesus with, as they say, kid gloves right now because they don't want to stir up the people in such a way that they turn against the high priests. They had to be cautious in their approach and so they chose to send some spies to afflict Jesus. Luke doesn't mention it plainly. But if you were to look at this incident in Mark chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 22, those two passages say that the men that they sent were actually Pharisees. Pharisees were kind of a step away from the high priests and they more deeply connected with the common people. And so they found some Pharisees that also were upset at Jesus and then came into coercion with them so that these Pharisees might put Jesus in a bad position. Look at verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. See, the goal of the spies in verse 20 is to publicly indict Jesus so that they could build a case against Jesus before the Roman officials. The nation of Israel had been given a degree of freedom by Rome to adjudicate the laws of Moses. The Roman government had allowed these high priests and uh, the Sanhedrin to in some instances govern the way the people who lived in Jerusalem went about their daily lives. There were laws that were not Roman laws, but were Hebrew laws that they were allowed to enforce. They could admonish a Jew who did not follow the, the law of Moses. They could uh, give them a fine. They could imprison someone. They could expel them. But they could not execute someone who broke the laws of Moses. That was a power that Rome was not willing to give to the high priests in the Sanhedrin. So these religious leaders did not desire to embarrass Jesus. Their goal was not to put him in his place. They would not be content to just show dominance over him. Their aim was to end his life and by proxy his ministry. If the man dies, they thought, this uprising, this, this counterculture movement dies with him. They would need something, therefore, more threatening to the secular powers to achieve this goal of execution. They couldn't do it themselves. Sabbath violations, blasphemy, violation of ceremonial laws, these are just a few of the things that the Pharisees and the high priests had claimed Jesus was guilty of. Now, he wasn't guilty of any of those things. But even if they could build a, a straw man case against him in regard to those laws, those laws didn't mean anything to Rome. Rome would have just said, we'll take care of it. We don't care about those things. To really catch the empire's attention, the high priests decided they would need to present Jesus as a threat to Rome's income. Hit Rome where it hurts, and then Rome will suddenly take notice of this man that has grabbed the attention of the high priests. And so they sent spies, men who were not 
directly connected to the high priestly ministry so that the plot would not be obviously tracked back to them. Now these spies present Jesus with a seemingly innocent, yet emotionally loaded question. They ask him, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? This in some ways could be seen as a theological question, but in many ways it was more of a political question. Were the Jews beholden to pay the tribute and the taxes that Rome required of them, which had become such a burden to that, that group of individuals? See, this is not a quest from enlightenment. These spies are not trying to learn something from Jesus. They are hoping to coax an answer out of Christ that will make him look <clears throat> bad to either the people or to the Roman government themselves. No matter which way he answered, the spies figured that Jesus would get himself into trouble. If Jesus says no, he would suddenly become the enemy of the state. If Jesus says no, it is not lawful for you to pay taxes. You don't have to do that. You don't have to render tribute to Caesar. He's not your real king. If you were to say that, then suddenly a humongous target would be placed on his back. And these high priests could run to their governor, Herod, and say, here is a man who is trying to steal from Caesar himself. The empire cared about two things. They cared about control and they cared about money. And so long as the Jews were not rebelling, they had control. So long as the Jews were not rebelling, they, then commerce continued in Jerusalem and they would generate more money for more taxes. They have more money. That is a big part of why the Jews were allowed to govern their own people to some degree. The Romans in their wisdom realized that if they gave them a semblance of autonomy, a, 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 a kind of a, a little bit of a leash of freedom, then they would be less likely to rebel against Rome and try to fight for true freedom. The relative peace also benefited Rome and so long as commerce continued, taxes could be charged and Rome's reserves would be filled. If people in Israel felt too strongly that the taxes were absorbent or unlawful or not worth paying, or perhaps they could find a theological reason not to pay those taxes, then Rome would stand to lose both peace and profit. Now on the flip side, if Jesus were to say yes, he would suddenly become an enemy of the people. If Jesus were to take a firm stand and say yes, you've got to pay your taxes, it's expected of you, you've got to be a, a godly man by paying your taxes, then these Pharisees and scribes believed that Jesus would then become an enemy to the people who hated paying their taxes. No Jew desired to pay tribute to Caesar. And the very fact that they had to was a daily reminder of their own personal failures with God. Now, I don't like to pay taxes either. Sometimes I think about where my money is going and I don't really appreciate some of the things that our government spends my money on. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, a joyful man writing my my tax check, at, you know, when, when that's due. But at the same time, taxes for the Jewish person in Jerusalem were more emotionally charged. They lived within the land that God had given to them as promise. And that land had been theirs for generations. But because of their own personal disobedience, unwillingness to do what God had called them to do, failures in worshiping Him the true way that they should have, they lost that autonomy. So every check that was handed over was a daily reminder and a humbling, a humbling confrontation 
that they had not lived out their covenant the way they were supposed to have. If they had been faithful to the Lord God, no doubt he would have protected them from the prevailing nations that tried to take Palestine, but they had not. And so, especially during the Holy Week, right? Don't forget the context of, our, of the things we've been learning in the last uh, couple of weeks is the Passover week, this time when people from throughout the empire are traveling into Jerusalem and, and the inns are filled and there are people from all different areas coming together to offer sacrifices in the temple and to celebrate this holy day of Passover. National sentiment is at its apex probably during this week of the year. People are wishing that they were away from Rome, that they could do what they wanted to do without Roman oversight. They probably didn't like that even the sacrifices they bought in the temple courtyards, there would probably be a tribute paid to Caesar for the, 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 the money they spent on those sacrifices that were supposed to go to God. <clears throat> and so these spies are trying to trap Jesus in a checkmate situation. You move here, you're dead. You move here, you're dead. No matter which way Jesus moves, it hurts him. If that tactic sounds familiar to you, it might because Jesus used it against the high priests in the first part of chapter 20, which Pastor Chris preached on a couple weeks ago. Listen again to this verse, chapter 20, verses 3 through 8. He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? See, Jesus can ask questions too, right? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, then he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, then all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And here's how these uh, high priests responded to Jesus' question. Verse 7, So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The tactic worked for Jesus because Jesus knows all things. The tactic does not work for these high priests and scribes and Pharisees because they're mere men. They try it, though. They're essentially plagiarizing his tactic and trying to use it back on Jesus, but he perceives their craftiness and will not be cornered. These men hope to make Jesus look foolish to the masses and dangerous to the empire. So in effect, these men are initially trying to confront Jesus, but their own dishonesty is what ends up being confronted in this, this exchange. Jesus responds with a request designed to deflate the pressure they hope to put upon him. Luke 20, verse 24, it says, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. Now, the denarius was a coin that represented roughly the average daily wage of a worker in the empire. This silver coin had two pictures on it. On one side was the bust of Tiberius Caesar. That's what you see on the left there, who was the one who ruled from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37. Along with that bust, that picture of his head, was an inscription. The inscription said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. What does that reveal? It reveals that in the, in the empire and the structure of government that existed there, those who ruled as Caesars were sometimes seen as divine, as more than a man, as some sort of a godly figure to be worshipped. Can you imagine how much it burned the Jews to have to carry these pieces of silver around <clears throat> with this blasphemous statement upon it? 
On the other side of the coin was a picture of Tiberius' mother and the inscription, High Priest. And so Jesus asks these spies for a denarius. And I want to just make two observations right here. Apparently, Jesus didn't have one. We've been learning about this Jesus who is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and yet he didn't even have a day's wages on him, which reinforces the fact that to Jesus, money was necessary, but it wasn't all that important. He was not storing up his treasure on earth. In order to give this illustration, he had to ask these men to procure a denarius for him. Secondly, we see that the high priests did have one. So for all their problems with taxes, they probably felt that that coin and its image was a violation of the first and second commandments, don't have any other God before me, and make no graven images of God. And so they, they probably were prepared to confront Jesus if he said, pay taxes. They could have said, oh, Jesus is a blasphemer. Those coins have the bust of Tiberius on them and, and a declaration that he's divine. They probably were prepared to slander him in that way, and yet they have the coin in their very own pocket. Luke twenty twenty five, he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Did money in that day truly belong to Caesar? In Caesar's eyes, yes, it did. And of course, tribute was owed to the Roman government in a legal sense for all of the, the various luxuries that they provided for those who lived in the empire. If you were a part of the empire, you had a, 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 an army that was protecting you at all times. You had a system of roads unlike the world had ever seen at that point so that you could travel from place to place. You had order. You had laws. And so if you lived under that security, then you owed tribute to Caesar because of the expense that they made to make those things possible. Now it's important to remember the mission of Jesus was never a rebellion against political bodies. Jesus' teaching never revolved around breaking free from Rome. That was not his emphasis. Or casting off their oppressive taxes or regaining control of the Holy Land so that they could expel these Roman Gentiles from what was holy and pure. That was never the emphasis of Jesus, of, of his ministry, was it? It was never his campaign. In fact, we see three different instances where tax collectors, those who are engaged in bringing this tribute out of the, the Hebrews and into the Romans are, are addressed. And each time, they are addressed in a somewhat favorable way. John the Baptist, as he's preaching and calling out Israel for their sin, uh, he says, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sin. And several groups came to him, including the tax collectors. They said, what do we do? And he says, stop defaulting the people. Stop charging more than you should. But he doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors. He simply says they need to have integrity and honesty. And so in, in, in not telling them to stop being tax collectors, in a way he's not indicting this system of taxes. He's supporting it. <clears throat> Later on we see that Jesus is walking through town. We just read this a few weeks back. And a man named Zacchaeus, a tax collector, climbs a tree to try to get a look at this Jesus. And he looks up at this Zacchaeus and points to him and says, come down from that tree because surely today I've got to have dinner with you. And that fellowship with a tax collector... That friendship that he sought with that man infuriated the Pharisees and infuriated the scribes. But he doesn't tell Zacchaeus to stop being a tax collector. And he doesn't tell him that his sin exists in bringing in taxes in a lawful way from the Hebrew people. <clears throat> Instead, 
Zacchaeus himself says, I will no longer defraud. And if I have defrauded people, I will pay them back several times when I defrauded them. And perhaps the greatest support is the fact that Matthew, one of the twelve disciples, stands here with Jesus, a former tax collector himself. Jesus chose this man who would have been rejected by his society to be a part of the team that would begin the early church. So Jesus' campaign was not against Rome. He was not brought to this earth to take on flesh to get rid of our taxes, okay? The early church was a rebellion not against Rome, but against the wickedness and the self-centered focus that plagues the heart of every sin-natured man. God sent His Son, Jesus, to conquer our sin, not to just make right whatever social constructs we don't like. He came for a much bigger problem than that. That rebellion was made possible by the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus and could transform the life of an individual who would willingly die to themselves and surrender their life to Jesus as a repentant sinner. Consistently, Christians are instructed in the New Testament to not make the enemy the state, as easy as it would be to do that. I know that we could all view our government as a common enemy if we wanted to. There are several things that our government's throughout the world, do wrong that get under our skin, that we are morally opposed to, that that infuriate us at times. It is easy to think of the government as the enemy, but the true enemy is much closer to home. My gravest enemy is the face looking back at me in the mirror. My life is not what it could be, not because some law keeps me from actualizing my potential. Not because my governors are not taking care of me the way that they are responsible to do. My life is the way that it is. It is not what it could be because there still persists in me sin. And because this world that I live in is flooded with sin. And the more I come near to the Lord God, the more He reveals that sin to me and refines it out of me. I am my great enemy. Yes, Scripture describes Satan as an enemy to us. But when I fall into, the de- into sin, the devil doesn't make me do it. He's just my cheerleader. He just cheers when I do. He just whispers little lies that make me think in ways that I shouldn't think so that when I consider the temptation of sin, I don't immediately flush it out of my mind and say, that's not what God wants for me. That's not what's good for me. The enemy is real and he should be taken into account, but my greatest enemy does not have horns and a pitchfork. My greatest enemy is me when I refuse to see the truth for what it really is. And so as we read these verses, there's a very practical and baseline application. Your real enemy is not the state, it's your heart, so pay your taxes. Pray for your government. Respect the laws that they put over you. God allows the governing authorities to rule over us to the capacity that they do. Romans 13, chapter 13, verses 1 through 2, says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we could have a long conversation about, is there ever a time when a government gets so wicked or is such a hindrance to your walk with God that it is justifiable to rebel against that government. And personally, I believe there are times when that is justifiable. 
But that's not what we're talking about here today. We're talking about living in a nation where you are free to worship the Lord and you have a government that is within reasonable bounds trying to do good to you. In which case, it is our obligation to the Lord God, not just to our president, but to the Lord God to respect that authority and to worship our Lord by keeping the laws of our land. <clears throat> Romans 13, verses 6-7 through seven goes on to say more specifically, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owned, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. <clears throat> So in so much as the governing authorities are allowing you to love your God, pray for them. Pray that God would give them wisdom. Pray that God would work through their structures to in some way bless you and preserve you. And then give them the taxes that they require, knowing that your true king, your true president, sits on a heavenly throne, not an earthly one. So you're ready to change churches now that I have told you you have to pay your taxes? Some people get very emotional about this stuff, but the Word is the Word. And we can't, because of our own personal desires, twist the Word of God to reinforce our rebellious hearts. Ultimately, everything belongs to the Lord God, doesn't it? Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2 remind us of this. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For He has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It is His because He made it. He brought it into existence, and so it belongs to Him, all of it. It is all His. So while it was true for them to say, well, the image of Caesar is on this coin, so give it back to Caesar. It's His. It would also be true to say that that coin belongs to the Lord God, ultimately because all things belong to the Lord God. We should see our every dollar as His, but in His response, Jesus capitalizes on an opportunity to reinforce the thing that matters so much to the wicked and to corrupt Israel, money, that thing which matters so much to most people, shouldn't really matter very much to us anyway. Let Caesar have what he thinks is his. All things really belong to God anyhow. See, much more important than money to God is people. The strategy of these spies to discredit God amongst the people hinges on the people being so attached to their money that they would turn on Jesus in an instant if he suggested their money go to Rome. They weren't counting on Jesus' response in such a way that the masses would then have to see their emphasis on material wealth as being flawed to begin with. Jesus did what Jesus does and taught the truth. He didn't step back and say, well, I'm going to plead the fifth on this one, like the high priests had done earlier in chapter 20, but instead, he turned their attention to what should really matter. You see, the verb... Render to Caesar means give back to Caesar, literally means give back to Caesar what already belongs to him. See, the image of Caesar was on it, so it's connected to him. Just give it to him. That's his image anyway. Give it back. It belongs to him. The same verb is employed then when he says, render unto God, which is God, which belongs to God. So let me ask you, whose image is on man? The image of God is on man, isn't it? The image of Tiberius Caesar was on a denarius, but the image of God is on man. Genesis teaches that when God made man and woman, 
He made us in His image. So what are we to render unto God? Our very lives. We are to render unto Him our very existence. Every breath, whatever we can claim to be, must be God's because He made us. We belong to Him. Give your heart, mind, soul, and strength to God. That's what He really wants from you anyway. Jesus has said nothing to threaten the tribute due to Rome. And in telling them to render unto God that which is God's, Jesus has reminded them that their focus ought to be on giving God glory, not whether or not they give tribute to Caesar. There's one more aspect of this passage that I'd like us to meditate on as we conclude this service today. Look again at what the spies said when they approached Jesus in verse 21. They said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. Can you say those things with a clear conscience right now? Could you make that statement and mean it? I hope that you could. That is an orthodox statement, isn't it? We know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. The confession that the Pharisees communicated to Jesus in verse 21 isn't always true, but these spies meant it for flattery, not as a confession of their faith. We know that because verse 20 revealed that they didn't mean the things that they said. Look at it again. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. There was a motive there. They wanted Jesus to think that they were sincere followers, that they had heard the gospel and they were on board with this. Why would they do that? They wanted to do that so that Jesus would possibly let his guard down and that he would see their question about taxes as innocent and unharmful and that might trick Jesus into answering it in such a way that would get him in trouble. We should understand these kind words as nothing but empty flattery designed to butter Jesus up and make him lower his defenses. And so these men have lied publicly, confessing his teachings as right, as unbiased, and as representative of God's way and will, hoping to come across as a friend to Jesus. The more they might easily deceive him. Think of how closely these men came to a right understanding of the Savior. They were able to say with their mouth the right confession of honor and adoration to Him. They spoke it. They called Jesus teacher. That that would have showed that there was authority over them, that they were ready to be led and directed by Jesus. A true disciple must see Jesus as their teacher. They've got to be ready to be corrected by Him. They've got to be ready to be confronted by Him and instructed by Him and to be given mission by Jesus that they could live out. He is above us. He has authority over us and we should honor Him that way. They confess that Jesus' teachings are right and that they align with strong, good doctrine. They confess that Jesus' teachings were, were taught rightly. And they declared that Jesus wouldn't be corrupted by partiality. When they say that, that he wouldn't be corrupted by partiality, it shows no partiality. Literally what he's saying there is, you don't just take things for what they are on the surface. That's what the Greek contains some kind of loaded meaning there. You don't just take things that are on the surface, but you get down deep into what really, what really means the truth, what the truth really means. By truly teaching the, the way of God, they confess, or by saying that he truly teaches the way of God, they confess his connection with the Father. They say these things with their lips, 
Confession is on their lips, but where is it not? It is not in their hearts. They don't truly love Jesus and they don't truly believe these things that they are saying to him. So they are so close, but yet they are so far away. The words were all true, but there was no real heart and love behind them and there would be no surrender to follow them. Friends, there's a great flattery like this occurring in our society today. And it is not as much of an outright rejection of Christ as we see in the Gospels when people are confronting Jesus and trying to trap him, but it is rather a subtle, everyday rejection of Christ by people who profess to follow Jesus with their lips, but nevertheless refuse to follow him with their heart and with their true actions. This flattery is occurring all around us in the world today. With their mouth, people give him praise. With their lives, they give to Jesus what they believe is perhaps the bare minimum to secure his favor. The bare minimum it will take to get them into heaven. For some, that's a formulaic prayer. Well, I went to a revival and I went forward and said some words out of my mouth that confessed that I'm a sinner and said that I repent and that I trust in Jesus Christ. But from that day forward, no real transformation, no real change, no desire for the things of God, no respect for His Word, no continuing humility. Instead, that moment of seeming humility is quickly forgotten as that individual goes right back to being the Lord and King and God of their own life. For some people, the bare minimum is to honor Jesus by attending church occasionally, so long as something better doesn't come up. I'll go to church and I'll sing my songs and I'll throw a few bucks in the plate when it comes around. I'll make a couple of friends. Maybe I'll even serve in some minor way. But a true commitment to God that says, here is my life. Use it for whatever you would want to use it for, God, doesn't exist in many of those hearts who feel that by just putting on the right face and walking through the right motions and checking off the correct spiritual lists that they will some way by their actions procure heaven for themselves. Others believe the bare minimum is to make sure to follow all the spiritual rules, all these rules that are easy to see, the rules that don't demand too much change for them or don't alienate them too much from their social security that they are also very enamored with. They want to be able to be friends with the world and also friends with those people that claim they are following God. So they don't want to be too radically Christian, but they feel that if they just do enough, then God will overlook their sin and they'll be absolved and they'll be able to go to heaven. And these individuals have flattered God by calling themselves Christians and by giving the bare minimum in praise to Him, but they... What they perceive as the bare minimum is literally nothing to God. It is not getting them any closer to a place to Him in heaven. What does He require of us, friends? He wants your heart. He wants your everything. He wants your life. He wants your surrender. He wants your attention and your affection. He wants your mind, your soul, your strength. He wants your willing service. He wants your happy devotion. He wants you to know the great joy of knowing Him. And that's part of the reason why, friends, evangelism is not always about convincing somebody that Jesus is true. There's a lot of people who probably believe Jesus is real. They might even confess it with their mouth, but in their heart there is no change and no transformation. They have not received Christ. They are not in Christ. 
And so our evangelism efforts, our efforts to reach others who do not know Christ cannot just simply be, let me prove to you who Jesus is and that he is real. Let me convince you with evidence that you need Jesus, but instead we need to implore people to be humble before the Lord God and to love him with their whole lives. We must preach the true Christ, but we must also understand that real conversion is something greater than acknowledgement or mental assent or academic belief. It is surrender and love and adoration. The high priests and scribes are trying to establish a case against Jesus so that they can eliminate him. They have judged him as unworthy, and they are trying to find a way to convince the Roman powers that he is unworthy as well so that they might put him to death for them. We often make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is a man on trial. That he must prove to us that he is real, that he is good. Is he the Messiah or is he not? Is he even a historical figure that really lived or is he a myth? Is he the son of God or is he just a prophet? Did he live without sin? Did he die on a cross? Did he really raise from a grave? Did he show himself to be alive? Is that all truth or fiction? And we ask these questions, and they are good questions, but they often get us into this mindset that Jesus is the one who is on trial, that he has to prove himself to us. Let the scripture teach us today, friends, that Jesus is not the one on trial. We are the ones who are on trial. We stand before a God who has all authority and power and knows the truth, and we have sinned against that God. We have committed offense against the one who gives us our every breath. And so it is in many ways proud of us to come before the Lord God and say, prove yourself to me. When in reality, we must come before him and say, here is why I should be in your family, Lord God. We are the ones who are on trial. Psalm 50 verses 1 through 6 reminds us of God's power and judgment. It says, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of its beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Jesus is not the one on trial, friends. He is judge, and he will judge justly. And if you desire to stand before that God and not be annihilated and not be punished and not be condemned, then you must bring the one sacrifice that suffices. And that sacrifice is the pure spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. There will be no flattery in the courts of God. The things we do to try to convince people that we are holy and innocent will instantly be seen as true and false, or as true or false to our God. So our only hope is to throw off every pretense, every attempt at vain spirituality, and to come in faith to the throne of the one who can save and who will save. All who call on his name with repentant hearts, do not need to fear the judgment of this judge. We will all stand before the throne of God one day. Will Christ be standing by your side or will you have to advocate for yourself?
If he is not with you, then you will experience a condemnation unlike anything you've ever experienced. But if you do have Christ, friends, if you are in him, you stand before God with the righteousness beyond your own righteousness. You will stand before God with the righteousness of the one pure, sinless, faithful man, Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been imputed to your account and there will be no wrath for you. Friends, let us continually be praying for those who do not yet know. And there might, be, might even be some among us who have been walking in what, what they thought was sincere Christianity, but it has been a pretense. It's been a, a show of religiosity. And through the preaching of God's word, perhaps there are even some among us who will say, you know what, I need this for real. I need to take this seriously. I need Christ as my Savior. Let us continually be praying that God will reveal that to those who need it. And for those of us who have received it, that we would not forget the gravity of his love for us. That because of grace, not because of anything we did to deserve it, he is willing to pay the penalty of our sin for us so that we can stand before that throne of judgment and say, thank you, God, for bringing justice to all that you have made. Would you please bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, we thank you for putting this word before us. It is now the work of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, to take it and to reveal its truth to us in such a way that it changes our actions, that it helps us to live out these words of truth, Lord God. I pray that we wouldn't just put this to bed now and go on with our lives as we leave this building, go back to a, a secular-looking life and a, and a godless-looking existence, Father, but instead you would be a part of everything that we are. Lord God, may we never venture far from you. I pray that we would stay in your fold that we would trust your goodness and grace, but that we would also seek to bring others in who do not yet know you and need this love so desperately, Lord God. Sin is a real thing. We cannot take it lightly. And so, Father, I pray that you would be killing sin in our lives, that you would be helping us to eradicate it, Father. If I woke up one morning and found that there are mice in my home, I wouldn't just say, well, I hope they don't eat too much. God, I'd get rid of those mice. I would eradicate that vermin. I would not want it to be near to my family. I would not want it to affect my home and my household or, or threaten to, to get me sick, Lord God. Let us see sin as even more serious than that. Father, may you help us in all things to give the kind of grace to others that you give to us so that we will not become a judgmental people, a people that think of themselves more highly than they ought to. Lord God, keep us near to you, Father. Let us have servant hearts and help us to know the glory that your judgment will one day come and that all will be set right in the end. We praise you and trust you, Lord God, in all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.